Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. For the rabbis of the Middle Ages, the Torah was the direct word of God. Full stop. Handed down directly to Moses on Mount Sinai, the Holy Scriptures were divine in the most basic sense. But what about the other Torah, the oral Torah, the interpretations and commentaries and commentaries and commentaries that formed much of the basis of rabbinic law? So my question is, how did medieval Jews, who were the inheritors of the Talmudic tradition, work this out? This is Mark Herman, a fellow at the Frankel Center. How did they figure what the oral Torah was, which was clearly foundational to their Judaism? How did they think about it? How did they seek to systematize and present a coherent story? For medieval Jews, figuring this out was urgent, Herman says, for a few reasons. First, because Muslims and Christians denied the sacred nature of the rabbinic tradition, as did the Karaites, groups of Jews who followed the precepts of the five books of Moses but rejected rabbinic teachings. And then there was the advent of the book, a new technology whose clearly man-made introductions and tables of contents structured information in a more systematic way and put pressure on Jewish thinkers to defend the oral Torah. So how did those who set out to defend the rabbinic tradition do so? Well, Herman takes a novel approach to answering this question by looking not only at medieval Jewish thinkers, but also at how Muslim scholars wrestled with similar questions in Islam and how their arguments informed Jewish defenders of the oral tradition. In this episode, we're going to focus on two major medieval Jewish scholars and how they grappled with these questions. The first is Sadia Gaon. Sadia was born in 882 in Fayum, which is a city in Upper Egypt. He seems to have been the descendant or had been educated somewhat in that area, but ultimately was an itinerant learner who traveled through the major centers of Jewish learning in the Middle East, spending time in Tiberias, and ultimately ending up as the head of the one of the two Talmudic academies, the Yeshivot of Baghdad. Sadia was in many ways a pioneer. He was the first to write comprehensive commentaries on the Bible, and the first Jewish scholar to write independent legal works in Arabic. He wrote philosophy, history, theology, poetry, and even works on grammar. Sadia was, in short, the major Jewish intellectual figure of his day. And when it came to the monumental question of how to understand the nature of the oral Torah, Sadia developed what Herman calls a revelation-only approach. Sadia's major claim is the claim that all of Jewish law is ultimately divine. So obviously the laws that were revealed to the prophets in the Bible. But in addition, this is where the boldness appears, everything that's outside of the Bible is also ultimately divine. So any laws that are found in rabbinic literature, all post biblical institutions like Hanukkah or the second day of festivals observed in the diaspora, uh, both of which are clearly from earlier literature, um, are clearly post-prophetic institutions. Sadia attempts to find and ground them and base them in the authority of divine tradition. Now, one problem with this approach is that the Talmud is full of debates and disagreements. So how then can rabbinic traditions really be the unadulterated and perfect word of God? Sadia's claim is that the rabbis were really trying to figure out which traditions were authentic. It's a sort of broken telephone theory of tradition that can be solved by later thinkers. Later jurists can come in and say, well, how can we figure out what the, what the true prophetic tradition here is? Um, how can we solve, you know, say, one side of debate? One side of debate is either wrong or only partially correct. Each side is partially correct. And he'll, in that way, will situate rabbinic debates such that they are not creating law or arguing about what the law should be, but arguing about how to recover the law. 
Keep in mind, too, that Sadia was the head of an institution that claimed authority when it came to questions of divine law, and so there's some degree of institutional self-interest at play, insofar as Sadia's yeshiva is positioned at the end of the line of divine transmission, so to speak. Sadia also drew on traditions in Islamic legal thinking. During the 9th century, there was a shift toward limiting prophetic authority only to the words and sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, a shift that Sadia picked up on and applied to his characterization of the divine authority of the Talmud. And Sadia also borrowed from Islamic thinking about disagreements in Hadith writings. So various authors tried to argue that contradictions within extra-scriptural relation to Muhammad could be resolved through various means, and ultimately the truth could be uncovered by saying that, you know, someone forgot part of a tradition or other people only heard partial part of a tradition and each side of an argument really is could be is talking about two different cases. Those sort of attempts to resolve contradictions within Hadith literature are mimicked by Sadia and applied to the Talmud. And they argue, these, these writers, Jewish and non-Jewish, that contradiction be resolved in that way. Skipping ahead now several hundred years in time, from the 10th to the 11th and 12th centuries, and several thousand miles in distance, we turn to the second main character in our story, the famous Jewish philosopher Maimonides. But before we get into who Maimonides was and his approach to the rabbinic tradition, it's important to understand the geographic and intellectual context in which he lived. If Sadia was at the very center of Jewish learning and scholarship in Baghdad, the Jews of Andalusia, in what is today southern Spain, were very much on the margins. And so, in the face of Baghdadi Jewish claims to a sort of divine authority, Andalusian Jews felt compelled to establish their own authority to create Jewish legal knowledge. So one of the things they did was ultimately to claim that the Gonic period had ended at a specific point. And this end of one stage of history was something that that authorized them and said, well, now there's something new and other communities are allowed to, to act. And so Jewish scholars directly challenged Sadia's position that the rabbis were merely creative conduits for divine law. Instead, they argued that the rabbis of the Talmud used their creative intellect to create new law, paving the way for the Jews of Andalusia to do the same. Similarly, Muslim scholars of Andalusia, or Al-Andalus, claimed their independence from centers of Islamic scholarship in the East. To that end, they were more comfortable than their Baghdadi counterparts with human contributions to Islamic law. It's in this context that Maimonides developed his ideas about rabbinic creativity. He was born in 1138 in Spain into a family of rabbinic elites and died in 1204 in Egypt, where he'd become the leader of the Jewish community. Maimonides is famous for his books on Jewish law, especially the Mishneh Torah and his writings on philosophy and medicine. When it came to the oral tradition, he diverged sharply from Sadia. Where Sadia saw all of Jewish law as the product of divine revelation, Maimonides narrowed that scope, carving out more room for rabbinic agency. So his first major move is to say that revelation at Sinai was much smaller than what Sadia and the later Gaonim had claimed. Therefore, he was able to say that the rabbis, or even more accurately, anybody after Moses did not expand Jewish law through prophecy or revelation, but rather through use of their intellects and their minds to explore and develop the traditions that they had received. And so Maimonides argued that the bulk of rabbinic commentary on scripture, known as Midrash, is outside the scope of divine revelation. Midrash is man-made, in other words, the product of legal disputation. 
And the fact that Talmudic arguments rarely reach consensus wasn't a problem. For Maimonides, the Talmud's variety of opinion on Jewish legal matters was not the product of mistakes in transmitting divine law, but rather the natural outcome of human legal reasoning. Furthermore, as Herman noted, Maimonides emphasized that Moses was unique in receiving revelation directly from God. And all others, all other figures, all even the prophets, certainly the rabbis, did not attain the same prophetic intuition that Moses did. And therefore, they were not privy to the kind of revelation and needed to use their intellect in such a way. And Maimonides emphasized the uniqueness of Moses for a number of reasons, not the least of which was part of a polemic against Islam. Maimonides may have disputed the divine nature of Islamic law, but he was influenced by how Muslim writers of the Maliki school, the dominant school of Islam in Al-Andalus, handled the issue of divine revelation. Specifically, he borrowed from Muslim scholars the metaphor of roots and branches, where the roots are the principles set forth in divinely revealed texts, and the branches are detailed legal cases that people produce. And therefore, disagreements among scholars were not the product of misunderstanding divine revelation. The Maliki school of law developed this idea that disagreements were not the product of a broken telephone or the product of mishearing or misremembering or misunderstanding from a teacher, but were the product of earnest attempts to understand and receive texts. So you have textual ambiguities that are pointed to as to account, in order to account for divergent opinions among the jurists. So a text could be read in one of two ways, or it could be understood by different people according to different principles. In other words, both Jewish and Muslim scholars were concerned with characterizing tradition as a product of human creativity based on principles emanating from a divine source. So whereas one jurist would say one thing based on one legal reason, another might disagree on as a matter of principle, and this would result in different branches or different details of legal conclusions. Um, and so in that way, Maimonides is very, runs very much parallel to and is clearly drawing from a longer tradition in the Maliki orbit. Today, when Jews and Muslims often seem diametrically opposed and struggle to find common ground, it's enlightening to realize that this wasn't always the case. Herman's research shines a light on how, when it came to the most important questions of the nature of divine revelation, medieval Jews and Muslims followed a similar path. When we're thinking about the constitution of medieval Judaism um, and how Jews really imagined revelation to have happened and to have written in the sacred histories that they wrote, it's striking to see that the way they did so was in deep conversation with Islamic ideas and contemporary ideas about tradition, about revelation. And that the process of rethinking tradition, whenever these sort of um, you have these tectonic shifts in how one imagines the past, is going to be done so through a variety of means that are not merely going back to the sources, but going back to the sources through the eyes of the contemporary world. That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. You can find the Frankly Judaic podcast anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And we hope you'll leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.